Welcome to the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church. We hope our broadcast will bless you. Our scripture reading uh, this Sabbath is Jeremiah 31.3. Go ahead and look it up, Jeremiah 31.3. I'll give you plenty of time to find it before I read it. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Amen. Yeah, happy Sabbath. Happy Thanksgiving. Let's go ahead and pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the Sabbath day and for bringing each of us here. Lord, I pray that you would be present here. I pray that your angels would guard this sanctuary, guard our hearts, and please repel, repel the forces of the enemy. And Lord, I pray that you would be my words. I pray that, uh, that I wouldn't be seen, but that you would, and that your love would be on full display today as we trace the history of your dealings with your people and all these many examples of your unconditional love. I pray that we would come to learn and appreciate that better than when we walked in here. Please be glorified today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The scripture reading for today, Jeremiah 31, verse 3. You know, I think if, if we had to choose, if I had to choose one Bible verse to kind of sum up the whole Bible, right, that's no small task, but uh, this would be it. At least for me, this would be it. You know, I think we, we describe the Bible as God's love letter to us. And, you know, since the description of the fall of humanity, it's just example after example of God trying to draw his people back to him. And it's just such an expression of God's love for us. You know, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. And I think we see that that theme repeated throughout Scripture. And, you know, if we look at the context of this uh, particular passage, God's talking to Israel. And uh, reading on, he's talking about restoring Israel after captivity. But I think that statement there in verse 3 really applies to us all. Because, you know, the love of God for each one of us isn't restricted just to a group of people. It's to the world. You know, and God's attempts to bring us back into you know, communion with him, that's not just for one group of people either. We see that is a universal theme for every one of us throughout all time. And it's just such a beautiful picture there. I just really wanted to start out with that. You know, that theme of the love of God, I think that's something that we're, we're pretty good about stressing for the kids. If you look at the kids' lessons, that's really one of the main themes that you see repeated is Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you, right? The kids sing songs about that. And I think it just seems at some point along our Christian experience, that theme kind of is less prominent and we start to prioritize other things. And, you know, not that we should ignore other themes. You know, obviously there's a lot of important stuff in Scripture, but everything really should be within the context of the fact that God loves you, right? I mean, that's the foundational theme of everything within our Christian experience is the fact that God loves you. And so I think it's, it's very common for a lot of us to, you know, get to the point of, you know, like the, the church in Ephesus in Revelation, you've lost your first love. You know, that's what God says. I have that against you that you've lost your first love. Despite a lot of the good things that he says about them, they've lost their first love. And I think that's especially relevant for me, I think for a lot of people too, and I'm sure not for everybody. I guarantee there's people here who have a beautiful relationship and a strong love for God that, you know, controls their every actions, right? There's people like that, and I guarantee we have people sitting here that are like that. But I also guarantee there's a lot of people like me who kind of have that flame of love that just is dwindling at times. 
you know, I think sometimes it's especially hard for people that are born into the Adventist church, that you're born to Adventist parents or, you know, strong Christian parents. Because I think a lot of times we follow their lead, we follow their routine, their actions, but we don't really develop that faith of, in and of ourselves. We don't develop that love for ourselves. We just kind of follow their routine. And I think that's a trap that a lot of us fall into. That's one that I feel like I've been struggling with a lot uh, is, you know, making that love of God your own, not just something that somebody else develops and that you just follow their lead. So I really want to focus on that theme of the love of God today. I want us to look at examples and I want us to really look at this together because the goal is if there's other people like me out there that I really want you guys to have that love rekindled, you know, I really want us to walk out of here with a stronger appreciation of God's love for us. And hopefully, like John, we can say that uh, we love him because he's first loved us. And as we come to appreciate that love a bit more, our love will grow too. So I want us to go to Genesis because when we talk about God's love for us, it's at the very beginning. So my notes have morphed a bit as I've gone through this. So we'll see how, how this turns out. But uh, we'll go to Genesis. And the, the creation story is one that, don't you wish you were there just to view it? Or don't you wish that you could just pull out the, the security footage for, you know, God's creation of the world and see how this actually took place? Because... A lot of people are visual. You know, you want to see something, you want to see it uh, instead of just reading it. And I'm kind of that way. And when I read about this, I really want to see it. You know, I think about where was God? Where was he standing? Was he standing out in the atmosphere, out in outer space? Was he standing on a planet or something? I don't know. But where was he standing? And as things came to be, he says, you know, like, let there be light or... On day six, let the earth bring forth the living creature. Did the animals just kind of, I don't know, pop out of the earth like zombies or something? I don't know. Um, or did, you know, the particles of the earth form together and slowly develop, you know, over maybe seconds to minutes into a fully formed giraffe or something? You know, I'm just really curious about how this all occurred. Um, but what we do know is that God spoke and then it came to be. And that theme is repeated every single day here is that God spoke and it came to be. And another thing that we see repeated is the fact that God spoke, it came to be. And on every single day, except I think day two, um, God says that it's good. Is anybody an artist out there? Be honest. Who's an artist? There we go. Yeah. So, um, Nicole, you're an artist. That's right, you drew a, uh, the, is a tiger, right? Lion, okay, well. <laughs> but yeah, I remember you did that, and that's, uh, that's very impressive because I don't have a lot of artistic ability. So if I were to try to draw something, if it looked kind of humanoid, I'd say that's pretty good, right? If you drew something that was kind of humanoid, that would be embarrassing, Right? Because your skill set's a lot higher than mine. Your potential for, you know, beautiful creation is a lot more than mine. So if you create something that uh, looks like the line that you have on your wall, that looks really good, right? That's nothing I could even dream of creating. And then, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, when he creates something, if he's going to say it's good, that's going to be at a much higher level than probably any of us. But then we have God, who is kind of the master artist. God... God wears a lot of hats, right? He's not just an artist, but, uh, you know, he's, he's so right-brained, he's so left-brained, he's got everything going for him here, but artistic ability is certainly one of his characteristics, and we see that even from a fallen world, right? We see so much beauty in the world right now, and how can that be? Because it's a fallen, corrupted world. Just imagine what it was at its creation, so when God looks at his creation, he says, this is good. That's pretty substantial, right? When he's saying that this is actually pretty good, that means a whole lot coming from him, given that his limit for creation is perfection, right? 
And we see that every single day. God, well, I said, except for second, although I'm assuming Moses just left that out. But uh, every day we see here God proclaiming that what he created was good. And how does he sum it up at the end of chapter one? How does he sum up his creation? Very good. Yeah, verse 31. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So even God had to appreciate what he had created. You know, like I said, somebody with such a high potential for creating beauty as him, he thought this was very good. He was, he was very satisfied with what he had done. And, you know, like I said, especially looking at our fallen world, why wouldn't he be? If what he created was significantly more beautiful than what we see now, it would have been something to behold. And there's a, kind of a repeat of the creation account in the Psalms, Psalm 104. So I think that, I don't know, I, I just like the way that it's described here as well, because we don't have the specific name of the psalmist, but the way that they describe the creation account, it's with such, such love. And if we can look at Psalm 104, starting with verse 10, it just talks about the care that God has for his works of creation. He sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them, the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. We really see a depiction here of God's love for his creation, right? I mean, just the way that he cares for them, the animals, the, the, the face of the earth, mankind. And then verse 31, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. You know, to me, it just shows such a strong connection that God had with his creation, such joy, such beauty. You know, it just kind of shows to me that God poured his heart into this. And I think that's significant. And we see a little special connection with one part of creation, and that's with the creation of humans. You know, like I said, with everything we see at the beginning of the days, God spoke, you know, then God said, you know, let there be light. Then God said, let there be a firmament. And we see that repeated every single day through day six. Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature. You know, God speaks and then things happen. God speaks and then they appear. In verse 26, we read, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. You know, he doesn't so much say let man, you know, develop from the earth, let man, you know, let the earth bring forth mankind. It's, it, it almost looks more like a conversation about, let's do this. Let's make man and let's make him, in some respects, like us. Do you guys, uh, well, those of you that have kids, do you have a child in particular that just looks like you or acts like you and that you think, that's definitely my kid? Right? I think probably a lot of parents have that. Um, you know, I, I like to think that Lucas looks like the Dominican version of me. And, uh, man, Leia, I don't know. But uh, Lucas, I think he definitely has a lot of my, my physical characteristics, except for the hair. But uh, it's funny, too, because it's, you know, you see these things repeat in your kids and not just physically, but kind of attitudes as well. Cause it's funny. I'll see Lucas saying things that I'll think, Oh wow, that's me. And, uh, sometimes for better or worse. And, you know, it's just really, really kind of a funny thing to see yourself in your kids. And, you know, we see God here, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. It just reminds you of that parental relationship about, I'm going to see myself in these kids, right? And then we see the actual development of Adam in uh, Genesis 2, verse 7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. We see such an intimate picture here about 
the formation of man, the Lord God formed him from the dust of the ground. You just kind of get a picture of, you know, physically taking this dirt and shaping it exactly how you want it to be. Very different from how, you know, it said previously he had formed uh, the animals. Like I said, he spoke those into existence and it was his words that had formed them. But we see something a lot more intimate here in the development of, of Adam and of Eve as well. We see God uh, performing surgery on Adam and from a rib creating Eve. Again, a very intimate picture about the development of these two beings. And, you know, we think about the formation of, uh, of kids. We're, we're blessed to be able to take part in that. And we see a very intimate picture of their development as well. And it just, in my mind, it just really parallels that relationship of a parent and their kids, right? A lot of times I think about the creation of Adam and Eve, and I think of God and Adam and Eve is his creation, right? And that's not wrong, but I think we see something a lot more personal here. We see God and the creation of Adam and Eve, but the creation of his children, right? They're his kids. And if we look to you know, kind of an unlikely place. I think that we see that theme too. Uh, Luke 3.38, you guys don't necessarily have to go there, but it's, it's the genealogy of Jesus, starting with Jesus and tracing back to, you know, Adam. And it's just interesting because, you know, we get the begets, um, and starting in verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God, Right? The Adam, the son of God, not the creation of God. Adam, the son of God. And I think that's just something that for me, like I said, I don't always think of it that way. I think of, okay, the creation of God, but no. If we think of it just that way, I think we're missing a big part of the relationship here and a big part of the love. Adam, the son of God, Eve, the daughter of God. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Because we see something special, too. If we go to Genesis 1 again and verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God essentially gave this creation to them, right? He gave them control. He gave them dominion. They were to be the rulers, the you know, governors of this planet that God loved. And to me, that's a very, very significant act. And it's one that I think very uh, clearly demonstrates God's love as well. So like I said, I'm not an artist. My, uh, my artistic career peaked in probably sixth grade, I think. Um, I can remember I had an art class in sixth grade and, uh, we, ha- we were all given these like sheets of paper and it was like a big scratch off thing. You know, it, it was black and then you take a stick or something and scratch it off and then it reveals the shiny gold layer underneath. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So we each got one of these and then for like the, the day or two that I had to do this, these weren't my hands. These were like Michelangelo's hands. <laughs> it was... Uh, I was impressed with what I did, honestly. But uh, like I said, I don't have a lot of artistic ability there, but for some reason, this thing came out perfectly. And at at this time in my life, I was absolutely obsessed with the Indiana Pacers, absolutely obsessed. Um, Whenever we had an art project, I would always draw the Pacers logo. So of course, what else was I going to do? I was going to draw the Pacers logo on this thing. And I did. And you know, the end product was just flawless, absolutely perfect. And I remember being so impressed with that. And then at the end of it, we each had to show our, our pictures and tell what we liked about it and what we could have improved upon. And I was thinking, what I can improve upon? Look at this thing. And uh, so I remember when it was my turn, I held up, oh, yeah, I like this and this. And before I could say another word, another kid said, look at that. He couldn't have done anything better. And I was thinking, yeah, I know, I know. But uh, I was so proud of that thing. You know, I felt like I had poured my heart and soul into this, and I had, uh, for some odd reason, drawn really straight lines exactly where they needed to be. So 
after classic, remember this kid was, he wanted it. He asked me if he could have it. You think I gave it to him? No way. No, this kid was not going to get that. <laughs> you know, there was probably not a person alive that was going to get that. Um, it, you know, I, I think I hung it up on my wall for a while. And uh, I, like I said, it was really good. But it just, you know, it kind of gave me, gave me that thought that I really poured my heart and soul into this thing, right? I really was very impressed with the end result. And there was nobody I loved enough that was going to get that, right? <laughs> there was nobody. And then, you know, you think, obviously, this is a little different than the creation of the world, but uh, it just makes me understand the connection that God must have had with the earth. You know, like I said, he cared so much for it. We read in Psalms about this strong love that he had for this world. For him to put it under the dominion of Adam and Eve, he must have loved them exceptionally, right? I mean, he had such a strong connection with this creation that he had. He poured his heart and soul into it. And it's almost like in giving it to Adam and Eve, he's saying, you guys have my heart. You know, I love you guys so much. Here's an expression of my love. Here's an expression of my heart. I want to give it to you. Can't you guys just see that? Right? And that's what I see right here when God gives them dominion. He, he loves them so much. And that's just such a physical manifestation of his love for them, that giving of the world. And unfortunately, we know what happens. We always have to get to Genesis 3. And we know that, um, you know, that uh, they did succumb to temptation. And it just seems kind of odd. God had given them all this demonstration of his love, and yet they're made to believe that God is actually holding back from them. You know, the serpent basically tells Eve, God doesn't love you. He's holding this back from you. If you eat this fruit, you're going to essentially be God. He created the seed of uh, pride, the seed of self-exaltation within her heart, and created this distrust for the God that loved her immensely. And we know what happened. She took the fruit, gave it to Adam. He took the fruit. You know, they distrusted God. And you think as, as a parent, if your kid does not believe the love that you have for them, how much would that hurt you? Right? That would hurt you immensely. Imagine what God must have felt at this point. You know, he's walking through the garden after this happened. They have their discussion about what happened. How much would that hurt the heart of God? His own kids, Right? And it, it's just such a, again, such an illustration of the love of God that he didn't just leave it at that either. They had sinned. They had rejected his love. They were under the condemnation of death, right? There was them and there was, you know, the second death, eternal death right before them. And what does God do? He steps right in between there, Right? I mean, these are his kids. Imagine if your kids were on the pathway to eternal destruction, what would you do? Right? What would you do? I guarantee you wouldn't just watch that happen, right? If there was something that you could do to intervene, you would do it. And God being, you know, a better parent than any of us, that's exactly what he does. We see Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and he's speaking to the serpent here. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her, your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Right? That's the first gospel promise that we see in all of Scripture. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And then he speaks of the seed that would bruise the serpent's, or, uh, bruise the serpent's head. You know, that's really seen as the first messianic prophecy. Again, God stepped in between his creation, his kids, and certain death. And he said that he wasn't going to let that happen without a fight. That was the heart of God. That was the love for his creation. For I keep saying his creation. That was the love for his kids, for humanity. And then, like I said, throughout the rest of Scripture, I think we see example after example of God doing all that he can do to bring his, you know, prodigal children back home to him. 
We see that Abraham's called, Abram at the time is called um, to be a blessing to the world, that the seed, that uh, the Messiah would come through his seed, and that through him, all the world would be blessed. And we see Israel was really called to be a model nation to the world, right? It wasn't just that God had blessed a group of people just to save them. They were supposed to be the means by which the whole world would be saved. They would look at Israel and say, you know, look how much God loves this nation. Look how much God cares for them. I want that too, right? They were supposed to be that model for everybody else. But God did love Israel, and he loved them especially. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And I'm going to read Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. And he's speaking of Israel here. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you are the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And we just see repeated demonstrations of that love that God has for his people. You remember when uh, Balaam was hired to curse the children of Israel? Right? What came out of his mouth? Blessing. It was blessing. Why? Was he trying to bless the children of Israel? No, not at all. So Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 5 says, Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. The Lord your God loves you. Balaam wanted to curse them for financial gain. God wouldn't let him because he loved his children so much. He would not let that happen. And we see the, the history of Israel, just the, their response to that love. And unfortunately, it's not a beautiful story. Um, you know, we see pretty soon after the children of Israel are redeemed out of Egypt, it doesn't take long to build a golden calf, right? And it doesn't take long to murmur and complain, to blame Moses, to blame Aaron, to blame God. And even after settling into the land of promise in Canaan, it doesn't really take long for them to start picking up the habits of the people around them, right? Worshiping other gods, turning from their own God, who's given them demonstration after demonstration of his love and care for them. And it gets to a point that eventually they just want to be like the other nations. They say, God, we don't want you ruling over us. Give us a king instead. And what does God tell Samuel? And the people come to Samuel and say, make us a king. We'd rather have that. What does God say? 1 Samuel 8, 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. He told Samuel, don't take it personally. This is not about you. It's about me. They've rejected me. And again, we go back to the illustration of God as a loving parent and God that this is a special people to him above all the face of the earth. How did that feel to the heart of God to be rejected? And not just in this instance, but every single time they went after the idols, the gods around them. What did that do to the heart of God? You know, I don't think that we could really understand that. But I think we have a pretty good illustration of it. Remember Hosea? Remember that prophet? How many of you are glad you're not Hosea? Yeah. yeah. That poor guy. You know, it was, uh, it was such an extreme time. Again, the Israel, Judah, rejection after rejection of God. They would consistently follow after these idols, follow after the pagan practices of the people around them. And, you know, it even got to one point, I think it was under Manasseh, right, that... Uh, that it said that uh, they committed more abominations than the nations around them, right? I mean, imagine that. These, this is the people of God we're talking about. More abominations than the people around them. They had turned so far away from God and followed these practices of, 
you know, the idolatrous nations, that they basically didn't represent or didn't, didn't, you know, represent him at all. They showed no resemblance to their creator. And so Hosea, God instructs him to do something really odd. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. For the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. He was to take a wife who was a prostitute, a wife that uh, he knew, that God knew, that would continue to leave him, right? Would continue to seek out other men, would get pregnant by other men. What was Hosea supposed to do? He was supposed to continue to love her. He was supposed to continue to accept her back time after time and continue to try to win her back by his love. That was his responsibility. And, you know, I don't think that's, uh, that's an order for how we should deal in our marriages. I don't think that at all. And I think that's important to state that this is a very special case about a very special time. But that was Hosea's role. He was supposed to give a, a visual illustration of the love of God and of the forgiveness of God. If any of you guys have an Andrew Study Bible... Go to page 1,138. So Marissa bought me this for my birthday, and I love it. But on page 1,138, it's the introduction to the book of Hosea, and it talks about the theme of the book. And it's just written so well there that I want to read the first paragraph of that. So if you don't have one, just listen closely. But it says, The theme of Hosea is the anguish of steadfast love. The book is about Hosea's love life and God's steadfast love. If a person's love is temporary and fickle, then unreturned love or rejection presents no major problem. Weak love can simply seek another object. However, when love is steadfast, rejection and unfaithfulness cause great anguish. Since love goes on while its object no longer returns any love, tremendous suffering results. Israel's unfaithfulness causes unspeakable anguish to God's heart of steadfast love. Hosea's own experience of having an unfaithful wife teaches him the pain in God's heart over Israel. Hosea's heart is broken because his wife breaks their marriage covenant. God's heart is broken because Israel breaks their covenant with him. You know, as we see Hosea continue to accept her back, continue to love her, our heart breaks for him, right? Right? It's just such a heartbreaking illustration but that's just a, such a, a mild depiction of what God goes through. And every single time, you know, Hosea's wife, Gomer, turns away, he's to return to her. And Hosea, let's look at Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of pagans. You know, as much as we see the anguish in God's heart through Hosea, as much as we can see that anguish because of how often and how frequently they turn from him, how much more is his love, right? As much as the anguish is in God's heart for his children turning away from him, his love far exceeds that because every single time we can see him welcoming them back with open arms. That's the love of God. And we see Jeremiah Chapter 3, verse 1, that same illustration of uh, adulterous wife here illustrating Israel, they say if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. You've played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me says the Lord. You know, and that's the response every time. Yet return to me. You know, we, uh, to me, that's one of the most striking illustrations of God's love is just this, you know, this, I guess, illustration of Hosea. Because it really makes you think, why? Like, why would God love us so much? You know, what do we have that God could possibly love? 
you know, that's something that I think it's David in uh, Psalm 144 that he ponders for himself too. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? Or the son of man that you are mindful of him? What are we? Why? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Why does God love us so much? But he does. I mean, even if we can't explain it, God loves us absolutely immensely. And as striking of an illustration as that is of God's love, there's a more powerful one, right? What is it? Yeah, Jesus. I mean, it's Calvary, really. There's really nothing that's a more striking illustration of the love of God for humanity than that. You know, Romans 5, 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still in rebellion, while we were still in that adulterous relationship, Christ died for us. Right? I mean, that's just such a beautiful statement about the love of God. And, you know, I think that we see throughout the life of Christ, we just see that, that love on full display, and not just the love of Jesus, but the love of God. Because he had said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But, you know, why did Jesus have to die? Right? It all goes back to Eden. It all goes back to that rejection of him. Because what's the law that rules God's government? You know, all the territories of heaven. What's the law that rules all that? Love, absolutely. It's the law of love. And I think that's something that we forget at times too because, you know, uh, the standard answer, okay, the Ten Commandments are what rules us, right? Or what kind of dictates how we should live. But, you know, if if we just leave it at that, then I think we're missing the whole point of it because what's the fulfillment of all that? It's love, just what Brenda said. It's the law of love, It's love, unselfish love, that governs all of God's creation, that governs heaven, that governed earth, that governs, you know, all these unseen worlds that uh, are under the banner of heaven. It's that unselfish love that governs them. And after the fall, mankind lost that capacity for unselfish love, right? And we see that pretty quickly. As soon as God encounters them after this event, what does Adam say? You know, that woman that you gave me, this is her fault, right? Unselfish love is completely gone. Right now it's replaced with selfishness and self-exaltation. And he's trying to justify his actions by saying, it's, it's actually on you, God. It's actually on her. Right? It didn't take long for that unselfish love to be, to be eradicated. And then we see that that's the state we're in right now. We can't abide by that law of unselfish love, Right? We just can't. We don't have the capacity to do that. And, you know, just going back really quick again to the the Ten Commandments. When Jesus was speaking with one of the the lawyers, and I think the lawyer had uh, asked him, what's the greatest commandment of all? What was the response? Let's go to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. And let's just read this really quick, starting with verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's it. You know, sum it up to this. It's love vertically and horizontally, right? Love for God, love for those around us. And in Romans 13, Paul states that love is the fulfillment of the law, right? So I, I don't want us to think that I'm you know, negating or belittling the Ten Commandments, but really they're testaments of love, right? If you have that love, you're fulfilling those and you're practicing the precepts of them. But like I said, after Eden, we had lost that capacity to do so. So we we can't really be in alignment with the law that governs all of God's territory. So what is God left with? You have a group of rebellious people that no longer have that capacity for love. What do you do with them? One, you could extinguish them, right? I mean, honestly, he would be justified in that. 
you know, there'd be a lot of unanswered questions through the great controversy picture, but again, that's kind of beyond the depths of what we're talking about right now, but that could have been a solution. But the other solution is exactly what God did. They've broken the law. It's condemning them to death. I'll fulfill that requirement and I'll give them the capacity to love again. Right? That's what he did. That's essentially what he did here on earth, on the cross, and by his life. And, you know, I think that because of that, all that was predicated on the success of Christ's, Christ's mission, right? He could do that. He could give us that capacity that we could have our sins forgiven and that we could have that unselfish love restored to us. But it required him not to fail in his mission, right? If he failed in his mission, all was lost for us. Everything. We would have zero hope. We would be, you know, essentially gone. So I think there was a lot on Christ's shoulders, and he knew it when he was here on earth. There was temptations assailing him, and, you know, throughout all of this, that burden on him, that if I fail, I'm going to lose the ones I love the most. I'm going to lose my children, my people. And especially from, from Gethsemane to the cross, I mean, could anybody have gone through what Christ went through? I don't think we can begin to comprehend what he went through. When we look at Gethsemane, you know, I, in my head, this is just uh, my own imagination maybe, but uh, in my own head, I really feel like at that point, Satan knew he wasn't going to get Christ to sin, right? He wasn't going to get him to sin. I think Satan had to have known that. But what he could do and what I think he was trying to do, he could get Christ to doubt that this is worth it. He could get him so discouraged. He could try. He could try to get him so discouraged that he'll just say, okay, I'm done. This is not worth it. Let me go back to my father. Right? I really think that that was the strategy of Satan at this point from Gethsemane, especially from Gethsemane to the cross. Because in Gethsemane, we see that Christ is weighed down with the sins of the world. Right? From the beginning of time throughout the end, the sins of every single one of us and everybody that's ever lived are on his shoulders right there. And because of that, he's feeling separation from his father. He had never felt that in his whole existence, right? I mean, this is something that he has never felt, is that separation, that weight of sin. And how does he describe it? I think it's in the book of uh, Luke that he uses the word agony. The Christ is in agony here in Gethsemane. Again, this is something I don't think we can understand, but he's in absolute agony And then what does he tell his disciples? My soul is uh, distressed even unto death. I mean, we see the absolute, you know, like I said, agony of Christ at this point in Gethsemane as the sins of the world are upon his shoulders, as he's feeling the separation from God. And I think probably what he wanted most right now was support from his disciples. I mean, he's going through this and he's going through it alone. And what does he tell Peter, James, and John? He keeps them fairly close to him and says, watch and pray, lest he enter into temptation. And three times he agonizes with his father. Then he goes back to them. What are they doing? They're asleep, right? They're asleep. Yeah, he is in absolute, you know, mental anguish right now. And all that he wants in the world is for somebody to support him, appreciate what he's going through for them. And he finds them asleep. Yeah, well, and yeah, I think we see that rejection especially strong throughout this whole time period from Gethsemane to the cross, too, because we see that, uh, you know, when the mob does come, Peter tries to fight them. God or Jesus, uh, you know, holds him back, essentially. But then when the mob takes him, disciples just flee. They scatter. They're running to save themselves. Jesus is here with the mob by himself now. And again, that's he's doing this for them. He's doing this for all of us. I mean, he's doing this for the mob too, the people that are taking him. It's just, you know, he, he's going through this alone. He's going through this without the support of the people closest to him. And then the mob takes him to uh, Caiaphas and to his court. And 
you know, all the accusations are thrown at Jesus, all the lies. They're trying to find some way to justify his death, at least in some form. And then two of the disciples, Peter and John, do end up following Jesus. And what's Peter doing in the courtyard during this time? He's denying that he even knows Jesus, right? And I think a lot of that, I'm sure Peter was worried about his own safety, right? That had to have been a part of it. But I bet a big part of it, too, was Peter was embarrassed. You know, this was the Messiah. Peter still didn't really understand the role of the Messiah here, right? I don't think anybody really did, uh, as much as Christ had talked to his disciples about it. He was still, you know, holding out for hope of this temporal glory. But how could this Christ who's going to be crucified, who's been taken by the mob, this guy's not going to lead you to temporal glory, you know? Peter didn't want to be ridiculed. He was embarrassed by this Christ, right? No, I don't know him. He said that three times. And I think it's in uh, Luke's gospel. It says after the third time when the rooster crowed, Jesus looked at him. You know, you can just imagine Jesus looking out a window, meeting Peter's eyes, knowing exactly what had happened. And Peter's heart was shattered, absolutely shattered at that point. He runs out and cries and is just absolutely broken. And what's the heart of Christ at that point, too, you know? Obviously, still full of love for Peter. But can't you imagine that it's just breaking a bit more? Knowing exactly what had happened and knowing that Peter, like I said, probably worried about his life, but knowing that Peter was probably embarrassed by him, too. All that Christ is doing for him. And then the mob, you know, condemns him. Uh, You know, the scriptures say that Christ... They blindfolded him, probably put a bag over his head, started beating on him. And then he's taken to Pilate. And the interesting thing at Pilate's, which, you know, we all know this, I'm just recounting it, but is that it's God's, you know, it's the Jews that took Christ to Pilate that want to condemn him to death. This special people, this chosen people, it's them that want to condemn him to death. It's Pilate, the Roman, the pagan, who wants to set him free. That's ironic, isn't it? that it's Pilate that actually wants to set him free. But, you know, he succumbs to the will of the mob. He, they put a crown of thorns on Jesus' head, beat it deeper into his flesh with the rod. You know, and then he gets flogged by the Romans. And, you know, essentially that's the Roman whip, uh, leather cords, uh, bones attached to the end of it, pieces of iron, with every strike taking away flesh, Right? I mean, this is also the physical torture that Christ endured. He's dehydrated. He's, uh, you know, in physical agony, mental agony. And then he's forced to carry the cross, falling under the weight of it. And then the nails in his hands and his feet. You know, it's just unbelievable what he had gone through. And you can imagine the universe is watching this, right? I mean, what else could they possibly be doing but watching what's going on right now? You know, what do you think the angels are doing? Yeah, I mean, I I, I could imagine the angels are just standing by. They're just waiting. I, I can imagine they don't understand why he's doing this, right? I mean, how could they? How could anybody understand this heart of love? Why is he doing this? And I can just imagine them waiting for him to call them. They're saying, Christ, just just call us. We'll take you home. This isn't worth it, right? That's probably the, the, the prominent thing on their minds is taking Christ home. This ungrateful people, you know, putting him to death. Those who were closest to him aren't offering him any bit of support. They fled. And yet what keeps him going? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's his love for us. And it's not just love for an unnamed mob, or I mean, an unnamed people. It's his love for you. It's his love for me, right? I mean, it's personal. It's not just, it's not just love for people he doesn't know. I mean, God knows the, how many hairs we have on our head, right? It's personal, It's love for you. It's love for me. 
I just think that we we don't spend a lot of time thinking about this sometimes. I know I don't. You know, we read the story about Christ's sacrifice, and it's it sometimes just becomes a story to us, right? When in reality, it's such a personal sacrifice that Christ made for you and for me. And this is the basis of everything else, is this love that God has for each one of us. Because everything else is based off of this love. And so I wanted us to spend some time thinking about that because God loves you, right? I mean, God loves you immensely. God loves you more than you can imagine. But it doesn't just end there. You know, if, that, if that's it, then, then we're still lost because we love him because he first loved us. This love isn't supposed to exist in a vacuum. It's supposed to elicit a response for each one of us. And what's that response it's supposed to elicit? So I love you, God. I love you back. Right? I mean, that love's the fulfillment of the law. And that's, love is not something that he expects us to you know, develop it on our own. That's a love that he gives us. You know, we love him because he first loved us. And it just makes me think, what's my motivation for a lot of what I do? What's my motivation for being here today? Is it because I love God? Or is this my routine? You know, is it because I truly love God? Or is it because, you know, I, I know that this is what I should be doing? You know, why do I do my morning devotions? Is it because I feel like I need to? I need to check that box off? Or is it because I love God so much I can't imagine missing that time with him? I'd rather miss out on sleep. I'd rather miss out on whatever else than to miss out on that time with the God that I love. You know, so it just... It just, I think, is important for us to really focus and to think about that love that God has for each one of us because our love for him should be the basis for everything else, that love for him, that love that he helps us have for him. So I just wanted us to spend a little time thinking about that and talking about that. And if, if there's other people out there that have felt that, that love flicker, that love, uh, you know, maybe start to go out, you feel like you've lost your first love, I hope that this is the answer to that, is focus on that love that God has for you. And every day, make that commitment to spend time with him, to get to know him more. And the more that we know him, the more that we'll love him. So I just hope that our hearts are filled a little bit more with the love of God, and that we make that commitment to try to love him more. You have been listening to the broadcast from the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church at 2420 East Ashman in Midland, Michigan. If you're in the area, we cordially invite you to visit our church Saturday mornings. If you're a distance away, we encourage you to continue visiting our website and weekly podcast at midlandsda.org.